Welcome to One or Two Hundred, the independent politics and media podcast. Uh, we've got a range of different time zones with us uh, this afternoon, I guess, for some of us, this evening for others, this morning for Joe Nunwick, who joins us from Australia. Welcome to the cast, Joe. Thanks for having me on the podcast again, everybody. Uh, we're also joined by our regular co-hosts, Justine and Bronco. And first appearance from one of 200 partner, Hugh Morgan. Hey, how's it feeling to be um, recording live rather than producing a, a series of um, historical podcasts here? Yeah, cute. I've uh, wrenched myself into the present. And um, yeah, great to see your guys' faces, mouths moving attached to the voices. <laughs> it's a bit surreal, but yeah. Thank you for having me. It's a very exciting crossover event. It's like it the is. Flintstones being the Jetsons, you know. Sort of uh, <laughs> horizontal synergies, I reckon. That's, that's right. I do hope our audience sort of recognises the importance of this occasion. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm hoping they uh, even just recognise our voices as distinct from each other's. Um, okay, if you can really, like, wrench up the Australian accent, and Bronco, if you can lean into some kind of Chicago accent, um, and uh, Hugh, uh, just just get that um, British accent. Go uh, hard up, Queen's English. Yeah, well, I'll, I don't want to be raised here. Um, <laughs> do you want me to do South Africa? <laughs> everyone, everyone, everyone forgets some South African. Uh, you know, I just think, uh, but uh, probably that's no. A good I was just relying on and you and I, Justine, being at different um, tones of the New Zealand. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, true. No, yeah, fair. So. <laughs> But we'll see how it goes. But we're, we're here today to talk about a range of um, COVID and, and union-related stuff happening in Australia, um, the different things happening in, in the US and New Zealand as well. But Australia is where I want to start this afternoon. Um, there's been so much happening there. And, you know, we talked about this last time you were on the cast to talk about Australian politics broadly, Joe. But some of it just seems to move so glacially at times and it's so hard to keep track of everything that's happening across the, the various states. But in the last week, it's been, it's been intense. It's been so full on. Um, last, last, last fortnight, even, I feel like everything has just um, kind of hit this parallax where everything happens extremely slowly in life when you're in a lockdown. Um, but there is all of the sort of, um, you know, spiraling chaos in our institutions um, and changes of leadership and stuff like that. Is that, I wonder how much of that is, it's finally coming to a head under a Scott Morrison um, <clears throat> leadership. Like, I mean, there's, there's, there's a few factors. Probably overarching all of this is that um, we had the Delta strain come through Australia um, without uh, a, a recommencing of the enhanced social security safety net that the federal government was dragged absolutely kicking and screaming into in March of last year. Um, they haven't done the same things this time. Um, I, I, I saw the latest from Morrison this morning is that um, Morrison basically says he's not going to be held ransom by um, state governments asking for more hospital funding to deal with with Delta. Held <laughs> ransom. That's cool. disgusting. Jesus. He's, ba he's, yep. he's, he's basically said he showered, he showered the states and territories with plenty of money to get through COVID last year and this year. Um, although there, I would say there's a quantifiable difference between money designed to, to support people during lockdowns 
um, and money needed once you decide to let the thing absolutely fucking rip um, and you start to run out of ventilators and ICU spaces. A point we're not at, but um, there's real concerns that we could in New South Wales and Victoria, respectively. It's really interesting parallel with what we consider the New Zealand situation to be, that you've had uh, Delta pretty um, rampant there for two months now. Um, starting from June 2021 Jesus. Um, is, is, is probably when things started to... Three months? Coming into the fourth month. That's right. So yeah. if you think about it, um, June, June is when things started to spiral in New South Wales. And, and that was, um, uh, you know, I, 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 I hesitate to use patient zero with any sort of certainty, but it began with um, a um, limo driver um, who was doing stuff to and from the airport. That's basically the only time a limo driver would get to go anywhere a lot of the time. Um, and uh, they were a contractor affiliated with the airport, but they were not, you know, airport staff or, or employee directly. And they weren't subject to the regime of, of ongoing kind of COVID testing and negative, negative returns that airport staff were required to. Mm -hmm. um, and it took a long way, long time for them to um, retrospectively fill in this loophole about who was dealing mm -hmm. with international arrivals in the, the hotel quarantine and international transit context. Um, but not being surveyed for that kind of health, well-being, um, use of masks, use of PPE. Um, so New South Wales got that. It gradually started escalating um, from um, uh, the start of August. It really reared its head in Victoria. Um, and today we have 1,488 new cases here. It's just, wow. but the fact that you're, you're not yet at the point where you've run out of ventilators and ICU beds when in New Zealand, you know, if we had 10 more cases, we would run out of ICU beds. Um, just just shows the difference in capacity between the two countries as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'll ask you, what is it that is behind... This is, this is Branco, by the way, in case anyone needs help distinguishing <laughs> between everyone. Uh, what is, in your opinion, the reason why... Uh, Australia's at the point it's at now um, and why I guess the, the government has kind of uh, publicly uh, given up on the, the eradication strategy. Is it just that Delta is so contagious and virulent as it is in New Zealand where we're seeing kind of similar problems or are there, are there other mistakes that the government has done that maybe have not filtered through in, in the news that's come you know, overseas? I reckon Delta is, um, look, look, it is more virulent. I think that's, that's recognised now. Um, and Australia has, the, has disadvantages geographically compared to New Zealand. Like, it's not a small island state. It has porous interstate and interterritory borders. Um, it was getting a higher influx in total of you know, hotel quarantine people, um, stuff like that. Um, I guess the sort of main main differences are, you know, New Zealand's, you know, it's got a, it's got, you know, one national parliament, um, very little say from um, local government areas about how they do things. Um, here in Australia, we had different different states pursue different responses at, at different times. So um, New South Wales strongly resisted um, going into a snap lockdown, um, and with their their sort of number of cases it made it very difficult to contain it in terms of other states at that point. Um, another sort of major difference I would say between Australia and New Zealand and a key one is um, 
Now, people go on about Melbourne being the, the most lockdown city in the world, um, dictator Dan, yada, yada. Uh, we have never had a level four the way that um, you guys in Aotearoa have had a level four. Um, I've been able to go and get a scrumptious flat white in the mornings when I feel a little bit yucky before I'm starting work. <laughs> um, you know, I... Uh, mm. Everyone, everyone who who wrings their hands about people doing the right thing and staying safe can also go get Uber Eats whenever they want from someone who's driving around to fetch them their food. Um, construction has stayed open. Um, factories and assembly lines making what I would say are pretty inessential things at the moment, like um, you know, the caravans for grey nomads to get around Australia on their retirement have stayed at work. Um, so you immediately have a ton of vectors for transmission, um, which are open, uh, which during level four, New Zealand doesn't. Yeah, I mean, that's what really struck me with your piece in the spin-off, which, you know, essentially describes a level three sort of lockdown situation. Um, and there being no, um, I mean, like within, especially like, I guess, you're right, like the people who are working from home, no understanding that that's really where the vector of transmission is. It's not people not obeying the rules, you know? Um, and so it makes it this like morality kind of like, um, you know, culture war thing when actually it's like a political decision to keep these non-essential industries open and allow for those vectors of um, transmission to continue. Yeah, um, very self-defeating because you know what I think. I think where we're at now is Victoria is just going to gradually open up anyway, um, and it's going to have a hectic number of cases, and it may reach that crunch point of ICU. Um, I feel like the the takeaway, which is really disempowering, if most most people have kind of done the right thing or tried to do the right thing all the way through, is being like you're you're selfish, selfish, ill-behaved, and greedy, and because of this, we failed at, at stopping COVID. Um, you know, an, an honest government even an honest state government would say, um, we did not lock down as much as we should. People went to work and got sick and went home and made their families sick and that's how they spread it. Um, that was the main basis of it. Um, you know, we're sorry, we, we didn't contain this. Um, they can say that they couldn't contain it because the federal government wouldn't give them the financial support to completely close. But that's what I think an honest kind of reckoning with it would be. And, and instead it's going to be, you know, a sort of pyrrhic triumph of the scolds. Everyone who's ever got mad because they saw two people sitting down and having a chat in the park um, can, you know, go to sleep easy at night thinking it's, it was the rambunctious teens and not them. Mm. This is a full, like, um, Western, or maybe we'd say um, Western Commonwealth narrative as well, is the, um, you know, the pandemic of the unvaccinated, uh, individual choice uh, kind of discourse, where their governments are really trying to push this idea that it's uh, single people doing bad things and, and nothing to do with the, the governmental health response um, or economic response that, it, that is causing these things. And we've seen that leaking into New Zealand as well uh, in the last few weeks with, um, you know, yeah, just some really horrible, uh, I guess, phrasing, um, from, from politicians, from the media, about people who are vaccine hesitant. Um, and some of it has been aimed at the youth. Um, you know, older generations are saying, oh, they're not getting vaxxed fast enough. We know that's totally untrue. We know they're the fastest to get vaxxed groups since it came online for them. Um, but yeah, there's this real push to 
to just hang it around someone else's neck uh, well, rather than any form of the design. Uh, whatever it was earlier this year when uh, uh, I can't remember what month it was now, but the, the, the KFC worker who, um, you know, was kind of publicized as the, as the reason for the lockdown and basically got thrown under the bus by the prime minister live on TV completely incorrectly. But I mean, yeah, that definitely follows on from, I think the, the, the kind of messaging from the top down that's, that's prevailed through this whole thing, which is like, if, if there's an issue, well, it's the fault of, of, this person being being stupid or responsible yeah and alongside that you know it's the seeds of that have always been there and that um they'll be very clear about you know that patient zero um kind of messaging very early on in any outbreak um to try and say oh this is why it happened i mean there are always going to be holes in a system um if you haven't got a way to respond to that or a follow-up response um that's where the uncontrolled spread occurs. <laughs> like the one, one dude in a limo is not the reason why Delta is out of control. Absolutely not. That's why I was kind of like yeah, yeah. patient zero is, you know, this is, this is the, the narrative, but it kind of, it's probably an exemplar of the ways in which it was spreading un, unseen in mm. New South Wales at that point. But all okay. of the stuff like being like, um, you know, saying that you saw someone walking quickly as a form of exercise without their mask or whatever, um, or you saw two people and you don't know if they live together or, or a family outside that must be too big to be a family. Um, no. the, the kind of individual um, do the right thing stuff um, in public uh, really gets stressed once you're having spread anyway and you have decided that, um, you know, people being socially distanced with and without masks outside um, is is the worst possible thing while you're still sending people to work in unsupervised and unmonitored workplaces. Yeah, it's a visibility thing, right? And I, I want to say there is one place where I'm happy to um, get mad at individuals, uh, and that's when uh, politicians or you know elites are flaunting the rules um, and and sending like that message that you know people can get away with it. So you know we had. Judith Collins here, jump out of Auckland level four and then fly down to Wellington and they go down to Queenstown. Um, not, not cool individual behaviors. Uh, and, and I wish it hadn't happened. And then we had a dame um, who was having uh, garage wines um, and, and just the same kind of thing. It's this, I don't know, may, maybe because they're, they're rich or, or they have political power. I, I have less, um, time for those kind of antics totally uh, i just uh, don't want them to exclude to to um overshadow actual you know major yeah no for sure yeah no, I, 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 I don't want to see new zealand i really don't want to see new zealand get to its 100 100 case day at all but i especially don't want to see one while someone's like oh this celebrity treasure island person was having a pet net um outside on their balcony <laughs> while chatting to someone who was um on the other side of the yeah balcony. i mean it's a sideshow right Oh, totally. It's bread and circuses. Yeah. Can, you, um, uh, can you give us a rundown quickly of, of you know, because people talk about Melbourne being like, yeah, the, the longest lockdown in the world or whatever. But what does that actually mean? Because I imagine there's been different waves, different parts of the lockdown that have, that have been more strict, less strict. So what exactly has 
this lockdown man of whatever it was 220 days they're talking about cumulative days um not not sequential days um so we had um uh, we had that lockdown that you know everyone seemed to have everywhere back in april of last year then then it got the better of us again we had another you know three three months or so lockdown then a snap lockdown for a week in february that got it under wraps um then we kind of had our current on off um june to present lockdown um i think the best it ever got was um complete completely normal i I think you know there was definitely um at least a few weekends there where you would go out to a crowded bar you could see a gig um you kept your mask with you for pt um but you you kind of had it had it off the rest of the time and people were standing and doing everything so I, i sort of feel like people going on what an endless lockdown is a bit um it's sort of over exit yeah what was the reason for the the on off lockdown was that just because delta was so unpredictable and and people were trying to get a a handle on it or or what happened there we we got we got delta in in um community transmission of delta at the very end of may or start of june um that that meant that we went into the sort of um level level three um equivalent lockdown here um that stayed for um most of june then we thought thought that we'd actually gotten rid of all of our cases we were able to go to the pub again for like two weekends and drive out to do bushwalks or hikes or whatever and then suddenly there was another cluster that appeared really really quickly um and after that it just really escalated um, I don't, I don't know why one version of data we sussed and then one version of data we didn't. Um, I just think it was, you know, where it was transmitted again. And I think this time it was really moving through workforces. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to me, like I, I, I've seen a lot of discussion about how COVID kind of finds the weak links, you know, kind of exposes, um, where they're like the social contract is really threadbare. I think it's like a good example is, you know, contracted out workforces because that, you know, that happens so that um, there's less oversight in terms of the terms and conditions, health and safety, um, you know, especially when it's from public entities like, for instance, like, you know, Auckland Transport loves to contract out um, and it's a race to the bottom in terms of what happens with the workers who end up working in those services. And I think it's kind of similar in, you know, Sydney with a limo driver where it's a contracted out worker who, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's just exposes so much about uh, some of the things that we sort of, we don't ignore. I think we're aware of theoretically, I mean, especially like, you know, us as like political people, but um, to like really be confronted with it, um, especially like I think in New Zealand now with the spread happening um, in transitional housing and, um, and like it's just exposing how the housing crisis has created such like yeah just just weaknesses and vulnerabilities and it, it just it, yeah it sort of just makes makes you sick to your stomach really i mean like honestly it's, yeah, it's bang on yeah um you're so right justine and yeah that point is it's 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 the social contract around work and also around social services i, I know i've been talking a lot about um workplace transmission but the reality is that there are some people going to each other's houses um, because that's how they can afford to eat um, 
or um, you know, that's how they can deal with couch serving because that's their form of transitional housing, um, or refugee communities um, that can only access um, social services suddenly on the phone or online and don't have interpreters um, and need to go around to younger, younger members' families um, to, to just get any, anything done and move through stuff. And which is a completely uh, predictable and solvable issue. Um, if, if the government, um, state or, or national government actually decides to do something about it. We're seeing similar things here, right? Um, with people needing to do those things because the government isn't just giving funding, isn't just like, hey, I have some fucking money or like, what they're not doing helicopter money they're just doing like oh you know here's his um sus sus boss phoenix company limited employing 20 subbies i'm sure they'll do the right thing yeah it's it's horrific and i've seen stories you know even during uh, our recent lockdowns uh people calling wins and really having to fight to get any extra food benefits or anything like people aren't going to ask for these if they don't need them please but it's it's interesting to me and like with reference to i think somewhat like early kind of proclamations about how the COVID-19 has ended neoliberalism (laughs) now it's a whole new world and government's not afraid to spend money and it's like you know there was like a period i think last year where you know there was some kind of like there was a little bit more spending you know and now that i think and even i, th- I think we see that with the Ardern government i mean seriously like there are the the lack of assistance to people yeah on the benefit to unhoused people this time around it's it's really key i think to what's you know what's going to happen which is it seems to be spreading um oh, oh. I'll defend that argument for a second, but only by saying that, I I mean, I don't think it's in the neoliberalism, but I do think New Zealand, uh, and and it sounds like Australia too, are outliers in the complete rejection of of even elite advice, you know, like the IMF, uh, which has put out numerous statements of various people in the IMF, you know, the the head economists and the like, numerous statements or, or, or pieces of advice basically saying, New Zealand should spend more. They should they should guarantee you know social social welfare more, and our government is just like no, we're not going to do that. And you know I mean it's crazy to uh, to have to give Joe Biden credit in the United States and the Democratic Party, you know one of the most corrupt and and, and terribly neoliberal uh, parties in the entire world, but um, they have at least somewhat taken that advice on far more than our own government, which is kind of like paraded around the world as if it's this kind of progressive uh, uh, dream. So, you know, yeah, it's for some reason in New Zealand, we, we, uh, our political elites just refuse to, um, to learn any, any lessons or take any, any opportunities. This does um, seem to prove my, my hypothesis that New Zealand and Australia are like 10 years behind just in terms of every, like, like the political, like, developments. Because I, I was really interested in the deficit hawk stuff coming out of Australia. Just a lot of stuff about, oh, no, we can't get into too much debt. Um, just, yeah, like, um, and it just seems like, yeah, total, like, Obama era kind of, I mean, it's, it's kind of happening in the States at the moment. But, yeah, we do seem just, like, totally, like, a decade behind of, like, what's going on elsewhere. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, this the thing is um, the federal government um, in Australia... I mean, it's it's kind of, it's kind of like the the two faced thing that right wing governments do, where they're nominally de- deficit hawks, but really they're just spending heaps of money on contracting out on sweetheart deals, 
um, on on dumb um, jingoistic defense stuff. Um, but they did not want to do this. And um, basically they realized that their government would be unsalvageable if they did not. So they did it for the minimum amount of time that they had to, and then they went back to their old tricks. Um, it seemed, it's funny that NZ's doing the same thing because it seems like a kind of um, um, soft kind of um, simpering sad face version of the deficit hawk stuff. It is. No one's no one's ever loudly doing it, but I kind of feel like um, uh, I, don't, I don't know. I really hate. I, I feel like I feel like Parks and Rec is probably dated quite badly because it's like a little bit of a shitlib two thousand sitcom. But I just remember how there was like the kind of austerity gang of Rob Lowe and Adam Scott's characters that came through Midway, and Rob Lowe's always promising the earth and saying all these great things can happen. And then he turns to Adam Scott's character and finds out that they can't do it because of the budget and then just kind of looks really sad and sympathetic. And I sort of feel like that's the Jacinda Ardern, Grant Robertson, like, vibe. Yeah, except it's hidden kind of halfway inside Treasury, which never, no one ever gets to see, um, you know, the, the hard numbers from, uh, which, which just helps remove it from them even further. Well, there's such a consensus in New Zealand, uh, basically, that... that uh, yeah you just can't borrow too much money and that that this is this idea this delusion that new zealand is in this dire financial or a dire fiscal situation which is not remotely true but it's pushed by almost every single party uh, and the media and by, what's that sorry and the and the media as well oh i was gonna say yeah and every single uh commentator and i mean you know to, to touch on this briefly i mean even uh national's big rollout of their, their big strategy uh for 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 beating covid uh had no mention of investing more money in the health sector it, it kind of obliquely does it because they mentioned like let's have more icu beds and the like but there's no commitment to <laughs> let's actually really like turbocharge funding into the the, the health sector uh and yeah, let, let's yeah. supercharge the vaccine rollout how oh you know <laughs> let's get let's get 500 um extra icu nurses um i'm sure we can do that really easily in a global pandemic i'm sure like there you could just get icu nurses what i just i ordered 500 icu nurses what's up <laughs> like i just literally can't but you know what you know what was, um I, I think i think why i'm talking about the deficit hawk stuff is john key it's like he came yeah. out of 2014 and just like read his like like all over the newspapers like ah you know, like the budget and i was and um and it seems like everyone was scared as well it was like you know like i i think jacinda was spooked by john key um, and i hate about, that he has that power what's funny about that that op-ed is that you know there's stuff that he says that is correct like i think using fear alone is, is not going to do the trick you have to do stuff you know some of the stuff that he that he mentions you have to do some of the the incentives and the like you have to like make it easy for people to get vaccinated yada 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 uh it's hilarious he says like no mandates but then he's like also no one can go into a bar unless they get vaccinated which, which is a mandate <laughs> don't, but, don't get me started on that <laughs> there's some stuff that he's like correct on but then of course because of, of course he has to he has to to get there he's like the real problem is that the government is borrowing all this money and it, it's putting us into debt and it's putting your children and your children's children yeah. uh, at risk. It's like, ah, oh, John, like you, you couldn't help yourself. You had to, you had to go back to the, to the hits. I think the funniest thing is that, um, and the, and the thing that probably undid him the most is he was going about how you know, New Zealanders are smug and they're a hermit kingdom and they're like, like North Korea. Um, 
Like it was, it was, it kind of had a like key to stupid lo- losers. You all suck, sort of vibe. Yeah, <laughs> which is a like, co- that's so dumb. Which is a complete um, kind of change in direction from what he used to do as a his messaging as a used to be super like, oh, we can do better. We're so good. Yeah, yeah. It used to be uh, I, I as, as someone speaking to the New Zealand people, but it was different. It was like, yeah, you fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> just what? he's just so fucking mad about the the cancelled Hawaii trips, you guys. He's like, oh, I could have been in Maui. This fucking <laughs> has John Key been doing for the past like he's you know a, he's an ANZ. He's he's a banking magnate. Like I he's been watching his Muse DVD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Hey, let's um let's move into what's been happening in Australia in the last couple of weeks. Um. So we've gone over some of like the historical stuff. We've done a bit of comparison uh, to give some context for it. But yeah, what what was Gladys Berejiklian thinking with some of her stuff in New South Wales? Um, why has that led to or, or been able to lead to some of this, some of these protest movements? Um, and and what's up with the unions, Joe? Okay, I mean the Berejiklian thing is, uh, I, I, I guess what. Are we talking about what she was thinking um, when she may have enabled certain kind of transactions and grants to communities affiliated with her then ex, who was also an MP, or what she was thinking just letting COVID rip? Hey, you know, like let's let's have both, but let's start with COVID stuff. Um, I just I just think that so if you flash back a year ago, um, our case numbers weren't quite as bad. Um, but Victoria was having a terrible time. And in particular, we were getting really high death rates um, because that is the point where um, COVID absolutely ripped through aged care prior to any vaccinations um, and, you know, caused the premature deaths of um, hundreds of people's elderly relatives um, um, or relatives with disabilities. In the meantime, New South Wales was COVID-free, sitting pretty, um, it was the model student in in the Australian um, Australian Commonwealth, um, and everyone was back at the beach and loving bars and stuff like that. Um, so the idea that New South Wales um, had beat COVID with very limited financial loss or hardship was a very strong one, and made Gladys an enormously popular leader. Um, I think there was an unwillingness to recognise that lightning was not going to strike twice. And New New South Wales, rather than having um, incredible contact tracing abilities, incredible organisation and a sensible measured approach, had simply got lucky. Um, They dithered and and didn't want to go down this ideological road, which they saw as associated with the Andrews government and failure of a lockdown. They left it too late and their measures were kind of... um, <clears throat> disproportionate in that they fell hardest on the most affected communities um, mm-hmm. and um, kind of poorly implemented. So again, it wasn't <clears throat> it wasn't a, a New Zealand level four, um, but there was lots of restriction of freedom of movement and over surveillance of communities of Western Sydney, for example, which is where the Uber drivers are, the factory workers. Um, in terms of the corruption stuff, I, I don't know. I've, I've, I've read these really charitable readings um, being like uh, this this um, ambitious, older single woman who devoted her life to politics 
Um, she makes one mistake in terms of trusting a guy and getting into a relationship. Um, and now she's been left to carry the can. I just like, if it, was, so if, it was, if it was a dude who had been sleeping with a woman colleague and then um, allegedly ennobling certain kind of grants and redirections of funds and turning a blind eye to that person directly profiting, people would have zero time for it. I don't, I don't <laughs> understand why there's some sort of weaponization of identity politics for this person of all people. Yeah, poor, super popular, super powerful Gladys Berejiklian, to be honest. Um, couldn't, couldn't stop herself. Couldn't stop herself. Manipulated. How could you, res- how could you resist that smile? Well, it's kind of like how the, the Elizabeth Holmes trial, like bef- when, before she was revealed as a fraud, she was like this powerful, incredibly competent, capable, like uh, strong woman, you know, and sort of a feminist ideal. And then now that she's... Uh, looking at jail time it's like oh actually i was manipulated the entire time and i didn't know what i was doing and i'm just a poor uh doe-eyed uh you know babe in the woods it's like well that's kind of i mean what you did was terrible but it seems almost worse now to like compound that by being like actually uh i'm you know i i was a i was a foolish little girl who was like manipulated and all this feminist stuff about me (laughs) doing this was completely wrong you know it's defiantly I mean, bossing the narrative. Yeah. I mean, it, that's the, that's like just like a callback to like weaponized um, femininity, right? Um, <laughs> I think like it's really interesting, but I think it shows yeah. the total hollowness of the girl boss gate keep gaslight kind of vibe anyways. So I think, you know, I think it's fu- fucking hilarious and we should mock it mercilessly. Why do you think it's we- uh, come out now, Joe? Is there, is there a, um, a belief in any way that because of what's happened in New South Wales, she just doesn't have the the power or the networks to allow her to keep that stuff on the down low at this point, and so they've they've got it for it. Well, there's an, there's an independent commission for corruption or ICAC. Um, you know that's state based. There has been a lot of pressure for a federal equivalent and a lot of resistance at the federal level for it for some reason. Um, <laughs> and it doesn't. But, but theoretically, it doesn't matter that there's a pandemic on. You know, I, ICAC should be like any other um, investigation of potential criminal behaviour. Um, and it should be like, no, nah, it's time. We think we think that we've identified this. We um, uh, are now proceeding um, to investigate. Um, I, I, you know, I, th- th- there is a lot of suggestions. And again, I, I find it pretty leery that this is political and it's out to get Gladys Berejiklian, the he- heroic New South Wales leader who is steering her state towards reopening. Um, I just, I just think that her response was really interesting compared to when some of the associated allegations about this came out. Um, when, this was, when this was an issue last year, um, you know, she was very much, this lady's not for turning, I am staying the course. Yeah, uh, that's what I mean. Like she, at the this, time, this, 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 t- this time she has basically done the, you can't fire me, I quit. Um, after your employer discovers your hard drive um, full of hentai on the network or something like that, um, it is, uh, like no, you know, she's not. She's not just said I'm stepping down completely as premier, but she's immediately retiring from parliament. Um, so I don't. I don't understand why this is being characterised as her frustrated um, reaction to a process. ICAC also don't have powers to 
to, to, um, to prosecute. Um, they are an investigatory body. And then as a result, um, they, they make findings and they pass their findings on to the Director of Public Prosecutions in New South Wales. So this process would go on for, an, for ages. And at the end of it, the DPP may not even prosecute her. Um, so the, the, if, 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 if this is, if this is um, somehow uh, a, a reaction based on a lack of merit, there would be a huge overreaction on her part. Um, my, my suspicion is she's, she's um, caught the disease which seems endemic to New South Wales politicians. Um, two previous Liberal um, premiers have resigned very abruptly, um, you know, in, in the wake of ICAC announcing that they are investigating fraud or corruption. Um, and it's affected a bunch of New South Wales Labor politicians as well. Why? What? So what's that disease? Can you tell us more about this disease? Because I'm very interested. I mean, I'm assuming that they're just corrupt. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what it is. <laughs> and I would love to read like a really good like essay because I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm in Victoria. I've never lived in New South Wales. Um, but it just feels like it's the New Jersey of Australia. Um, <laughs> Like you know, everyone's on the take. There's constantly some sort of sports stadium being <laughs> back. Yeah, totally. Like my, I've got family in, in Sydney, so I spent like a, I've spent a lot of time there, and I remember the Sam, uh, what was his name? The Labor guy who also he was a a New South Wales politician. Desari. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, it yeah. Federal. Yeah. Federal. Yeah. 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 So. Um, I get, I totally, I feel you. It's like LA meets New Jersey. That is the vibe of Sydney. And totally. It's, <laughs> like it's such an interesting place because of that. I mean, I kind of enjoy it. But I mean, it's like, it's absolutely, it's, it's insane. Like it's, it's really crazy. Um, and my, um, my family are all liberal voters. So it's actually been quite entertaining just talking to them about it, just watching them tie themselves like, in knots, trying to like, criticize the you know the premier while not wanting to vote for anybody else it's just um (laughs) what's the what's the impact of this resignation going to be uh there is um uh, the the most um high profile replacement that i've seen um is this guy called dominic peritet who is a very conservative um lawyer um he um, talked about how Trump's election um, was a wake-up call and a win for conservatives against the elites. Um, he is seen as to the right of the party and he is currently the treasurer. Um, her, my main takeaways from what little I know about him is that it was recently revealed that um, New South Wales work cover, which is, you know, every state and territory has its own workers' compensation-based um, thing that's kind of like a... Uh, a poor person's ACC, um, that he was, that there were systemic situations of, you know, underpaying injured workers. Um, and it's unclear whether or not that was, you know, a very strategic premiated cut your cost things or incompetence or some combination of both. Sounds like a lovely guy. Yeah. Seems, seems like a real, a real winner. Um, I don't, I don't know how popular currently, um, the New South Wales opposition is. Um, I know that oppositions have largely been invisible during the pandemic um, because you constantly have, um, you know, daily press conferences like like an Aotearoa um, with a strong forum for a bit of a a bit of a, 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 a 
focus on personality around the chief health, health advisor and the premier or prime minister to always emerge. Um, they've gone through heaps of leadership changes as well or concerns about their popularity, kind of like Judith Collins and National have um, on your side of the Tasman. So it doesn't need to go to a vote, though, or do they just... Her, she, 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 well, I, I don't know what their internal processes um, are for for replacements. They may have a, uh, a caucus or, or, or cabinet-based vote in New South Wales. Um, they will have a by-election for Gladys's seat, um, but that's like... Um, that's like a seat on the North Shore um, going to a by-election. It's going to handle, handily be won mm-hmm. um, by whoever you stick a blue ribbon on. Right, but there's not a new. There's nothing new for the for the premier um, itself. That's just someone just moves into that role. Someone will move into that role, right. and um, you know, then you'll just kind of toddle on till the next election. Really, really, the sort of nature of it will be. Um, you know, you'll really determine um, whether or not there is a, a Gladys halo onto whoever replaces. Um, replaces her as premier. Given that um, we're now going to sort of see what it, what a reopening looks like in New South Wales a bit before Victoria, so we'll get to see the sort of you know two tiered world of people still getting sick from coronavirus. Um, what until until there's a, a higher level of vaccine rollout, but you'll see you know bars and clubs um, and beaches back open. Horrible. So we heard um, about the Liberal Party floundering around nationally with with the strategy and you know trying to figure out something something that that sticks. What has the opposition been doing? You mean uh, the federal opposition? Yeah, yeah. Uh, not a not a hell of a lot. Um, uh, I mean, they're, they're they're sort of desperately claiming that they want to re- 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 restore some sort of status quo, I suppose, but they're. They're really out of touch with their historic base at this point. Um, you know, the Australian Labor Party faces a real crisis um, of um, uh, re-engaging with a, a sort of working and, and manual labor class um, who kind of became um, John Howard's, um, you know, intellectual property in the late 1990s and a sort of Reagan Democrats style move. Um, they have been... Um, consistently fence-sitting to the point that it is it is sort of unclear and it is duplicitous about what they see. Like, they like to cosplay that they'll go back to a grand restoration of fossil fuels and mining, um, but simultaneously they'll say, um, you know, to their inner city seats that they hold, hold safely um, that they want to see some sort of just transition, but they never talk about what that just transition looks like. So it's deeply unconvincing if you do work in, in regional New South Wales, regional Queensland, um, and may or may not have opinions on climate change, but definitely do have opinions on wanting to have a job. Um, elsewhere, they're not really making coalitions of the, the modern working poor in terms of, you know, uh, contracted workers, call centre workers, the unemployed, um, you know, nurses, healthcare assistants, aged care. Um, mm. so, so in terms of colouring... They don't get what's happening with the changing nature of the economy. Right, right. And, and, and with COVID, uh, we mentioned the, the national rollout of their strategy, which whatever you want to say about it kind of presents some sort of alternative where mm-hmm. they're saying, you know, we need to give up on Labor's eradication strategy and kind of like learn to live with the virus with, with kind of accommodations made here and there. So what is Australian Labor's strategy? That they're putting forward. They, they, they have they have not opened anything vaunted in any way. They continue to do what National were doing up until the previous week, which is kind of 
poke holes when another story breaks out about the federal government not doing something fast enough or not giving enough to hotel quarantine. So little vision among everyone. They're doing this really, um, they're doing this really infuriating thing at the moment, which I think is is um, misplaced um, politics. So, um, you know, JobKeeper was kind of like the wage subsidy in New Zealand in that it got rolled out to a lot of places, no questions asked. Um, they weren't spending weeks and months declining companies. Um, they were just, you know, approving it. And now more stories are coming out inevitably about um, companies that took the money when they didn't need it and didn't give it back. Um, federal Labor seems to be spending a lot of time, from what I see, relitigating all of that stuff. Um, but it's last year's news. And all people remember is that they kept their jobs during that time. I, I, yes, yes, it is graft in terms, of, in terms of these companies getting this money. I just don't think it resonates particularly compared to what people are worried about looking forward. Is it, yeah, uh, I was going to ask you a question here, but um, you have one. Oh, yeah. I was just going to ask Joe, has there been a change in the balance and forces at all over the last couple of years? Because I guess um, I know in Queensland, the Greens are kind of surging a bit and there's probably going to be an election next year. Has there any been sort of breakout people or parties or, you know, strike waves or anything like that that we've seen? In other oh, places, in, in terms of, in terms of breakout alternatives to the sort of bipartisan coalition versus ALP. Yeah, I guess like you could argue David Seymour and Act have, have sort of created themselves a, a place that didn't exist. Has there been any other group um, of schools? The maybe? the places where it seems like that stuff is most likely to go um, on a federal basis um, are Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party, which, you know, um, kind of do do the far-right nationalist sort of thing. There's also this um, guy, um, a mining magnate called Clive Palmer, who, who has a Palmer United Party, which are now explicitly um, flirting with anti-lockdown conspiracy stuff. Um, Craig Kelly, who was a coalition federal MP in New South Wales, abruptly resigned. Um, he was the dude who was peddling Invermectin and hydrochloroquine and um, stuff about COVID being a fiction on on his Facebook page, and um, he has now joined the Palmer United Party um, as their one federal representative. Um, that party has a load of of mining magnate money. Um, they send out kind of undifferentiated waves of SMS messages to everybody. Um, so people, um, all of my friends in Melbourne get texts from the Palm United Party, despite, you know, not being um, within their demographic. So they've obviously just purchased every list of, of phone numbers available. And they have great big billboards on every highway everywhere um, saying, sick of Labour, sick of the Liberals, we must never trust them again. Um, now, before COVID, in the previous 2019 election, Clive Palmer did something very similar. Um, and when um, frustrated people um, go to the polls and decide to vote for the, the party with the billboard saying, don't trust Labour, don't trust um, the Liberals, make Australia great again, that's, that's explicitly they've copped the mega thing. Um, because of the preferential voting system in Australian elections, um, if you vote for um, the Palm United Party, then your preferences flow to the Liberals. Um, so effectively, it's a stalking horse um, for ensuring a split and more more votes going to the right. Horrible. 
And what about the Victorian socialists? They, from what I know, they're sort of a, a, a small but growing force. Have they been making an impact uh, on Melbourne's discourse? I, 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 I think their their most substantial discourse, um, even though there are some, you know, un, unaffiliated socialists, has been in local government associations. Um, the difficulty that they're having there in terms of like, because LGAs don't have that much power around the COVID response and rollout, um, that work becomes particularly invisible right now. Mm. Um, whether or not they will be able to, um, whether, whether or not they'll be able to, to provide a, a sort of more co concerted and coordinated response in time for the next Victorian election or the next federal election really remains to be seen. I do think that there was um, a bit of a focus, um, which was, again, a little bit of wishful thinking from some um, socialists saying that um, we still must pursue elimination and a zero mm. target in Victoria. Um, I agree, theoretically, that would be best. The problem is um, that, that they were saying that would be pursued in a total counterfactual where federal or state governments could be persuaded to completely shut down industry and pay people to stay home apart from healthcare workers and the people who get people to and from healthcare workers. Um, that's what we should be doing. But again, it has that sort of tint of, um, there is no way to campaign, to campaign and organize to make this thing happen now that the toothpaste is out of the tube. Um, and, you know, by, by and large, you know, socialists are fundamentally responsible people who feel a kinship to their communities and they don't gather in a pandemic in their hundreds or thousands on the street making demands. That, um, um, and that leads to, again, the problem of invisibility. That, that brings us pretty well to the final thing I wanted to talk about um, on the cast today, Joe, which is some of the protests that have been happening and the people that have been gathering um, and the way those have been, well, were initially tied to um, unions and workers uh, that has since, well, since, since came out pretty quickly uh, that that wasn't who was behind the organisation. Yeah, that's right. So um, the, the, when we say unions, it mainly started with the CFMEU, which is the Construction, Forestry, Maritime, Mining and Energy Union here. And um, it began with, uh, so, so the, 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 the first kind of point of, of tension um, was, you know, the acknowledgement that this, this pandemic wasn't spreading because, because someone sat down on the, on the grass median outside my street with a scrumptious flat white. It was happening because mm -hmm. people were, were working in construction. The weather's been cold and shitty. They, when, when you're on construction sites, a lot of the time, they have those tiny little squat prefabs. And that's where you go in and sit for smoko and your, yep. your thermos or whatever, um, because you don't want to be outside in the cold and the wind. Um, so people were going to construction. They were transmitting it. Um, and um, there was an increasing concern about this. The, the first measure was to announce um, that it was going to be um, uh, outdoor, out, outdoor breaks um, and socialising and eating only. Um, and so there was a, look, there was a, a protest which I didn't have, I didn't have too much concern about it. It was, you know, sort of CFMEU softly sanctioned um, and it involved a bunch of, um, construction workers pulling out their long tables and sitting distance out on the street saying you've made us do this we have nowhere else to go um, in the CBD to, 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 to do this we may as well do it in the middle of the streets 
Um, and that's kind of, you know, a failure of the government to think if you are saying people have to go and eat outside um, in these, you know, you know, people building skyscrapers in the middle of town, where are they going to go? Um, then it was complicated by the opportunists who really spied issues with um, prospective vaccine, man vaccine mandates in the construction industry. Um, <clears throat> they said that um, you know, because the CFMEU had not taken a hard line against this, um, they were going to pressure the CFMEU and demonstrate outside their state headquarters for this. Um, and demonstrate they did. They gathered outside the front, they um, pouted the front with bottles of urine, yelled and screamed in the faces of the state secretary and, and state president. Um, it was um, very tense with um, dozens and then hundreds of people pouring into the throngs. And what's not clear is the extent to which um, that was aggrieved CFMEU workers who were anti-vaccine and felt like they were being forced to adhere to it and felt that, the, that their union needed to be more outspoken. And then the extent to which the void was filled um, with anti-lockdown and, and vaccine denialist or conspiracist organisers, many of whom are linked to the far right, turning up in droves and donning one of the easiest uniforms in the world to look like you're an honest-to-God, sold-to-the-earth tradie, which is a, a high-vis jacket. Mm. Um, incidentally, Kmart did run out of a number of, of common sizes of Hiver's um, singlets. Over the Actually, they, they were able to find that out. Holy <laughs> shit. Someone, <laughs> someone was posting on Facebook and they found the screenshots and I was like, this is, I, I mean, that's, that's circumstantial, but, um, you know, why, why would you be seeing this unless um, uh, you had like a, a more losery antipodean version of... Um, the Gillette Jones movement or something yeah. like that. Anyway, in the middle of this, there is a parallel decision, which was probably exquisitely ill-timed, um, which is that, you know, the construction spread was getting concerning enough uh, that they decided to shut down the construction sector completely for two weeks in an attempt to mitigate the spread. Um, I can understand that as a public health measure, um, but what it did was it, it, it appeared to be a reaction um, to construction workers um, initially protesting and challenging the vaccine mandate. So it gave a massive amount of, of suspicion and ammunition. It was fuel on the fire. And the following day, there was a march with 2,000 people or so who proceeded from the CFMU headquarters and eventually blocked off the Westgate freeway on the Westgate Bridge here in Melbourne. Um, now, again, that, that is a, a coalition um, that almost certainly did include paid-up CFMEU members who, who may also be anti-vaccine, you know, like, let's, let's not be sort of, um, shouldn't, you shouldn't infantilise, you know, union members by saying, oh, no, they're all salt of the earth, they must all be intrinsically good people. But there were clearly a bunch of non-members as well. Um, there were, you know, amphetamined up... Um, young guys who got caught on camera having bumps of speed or whatever, or you know, who knows what they were doing. Um, basically a chance to, to, to get out, get a bit high and do something for a change. Um, and then you had the neo-Nazis, you had people sig hailing in the middle of the street. Um, and then you had all of the weird sus anti-COVID influencers taking photos um, who probably would hammer a nail like John Key if they were put on a site and led to do something. Um, <laughs> 
Anyway, that, that, that is the, the flip side of this construction shutdown. And again, to come back to this point about the sort of denuding of the social contract, um, everyone likes to think that there's a bunch of, um, you know, Howard era battlers, white Australian guys in their hard hats who've had a guts full. Um, I know of people who are of refugee backgrounds. Um, they are sparkies or put in mesh and stuff in these buildings. Um, they don't speak or read English. They just turn up and do their jobs. And they were sent home not knowing what the fuck was going on. Um, they are entitled, for, entitled to COVID disaster payments administered through the federal system. Um, to do that, they had to read lengthy English forms online and sign up for it um, and couldn't get through over phones with an interpreters. So that's the flip side of all this stuff happening. Um, for all of your people who are out demanding that dictator Dan resign and having this plausible deniability association with anti-vaxxers and fascists, you have the actual workers who were just left completely high and dry by it. Yeah. What's your sense of um, uh, like the, the wider uh, attitude to, to some of these measures, whether it's pandemic restrictions or whether it's something like a vaccine mandate? Because I, I feel like like in the United States, for example, uh, there's so much coverage of these very loud, uh, very attention-grabbing uh, protesters who, who you know, uh, want to appear like they are this this big majority. But I, I actually feel like in the United States, the, the there is a silent majority that's mostly fine with with a lot of the steps that have been taken. I suspect um, it's similar. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, I mean, if you, if you think about it, uh, we hit 80% half, half vaxxed or first dose this week in, in Victoria. Um, I, it's reasonable to assume that virtually all of those people who get their first dose will get their second dose. Um, that is, you know, e e even if there was a really abrupt slowdown from there, you have a super majority of people who were like, oh, I'll get vaccinated. That's fine. Um and then you and, and and the main sort of stuff I've seen are people people sort of howling in protests that get a ton of coverage, um, or I've seen um, you know slightly kind of um, you know professional opinion have a stuff. So the people who only do op eds or are um, you know uni university university people kind of stepping out of the wheelhouse to be like I talk about cancel culture a lot, but here's why vaccine mandates are bad. Um, and, and, and so I, don't, I, think, I think that's not really capturing the silent majority. Like it's, it's, an illiberal, it's a really illiberal situation and it's interesting to kind of tease the thoughts of with vaccine mandates and the silent majority. Um, but you know, there's no denying that there is this really dark and sordid history of people being denied access um, to services and public spaces and public life um, based on, on gender, skin color, ethnicity, um, and now we, we, I guess we're kind of looking um, potentially at a situation where um, in work, in, you know, in public spaces um, uh, like, like bars, like restaurants, um, sporting events, um, there will be people who, who can't come into them. Um, and the, the, the basis for refusing that will arguably be uh, a necessary public health measure. Um, but some of the prime people who will be the most affected by it um, could be people who you know, there is not an automatic sort of well of, of sympathy for and not an automatic source of discrimination. The people who could be cut out of public life um, are anti-vaxxers um, with a lot of the baggage that that carries. 
Um, and I think that that definitely carries some persuasive force to the silent majority. What actually happens in practice is um, the risk that you will catch people who are completely out of the loop. Um, Henry Cook and stuff made a really good point about this, that often because of language and access barriers, people don't know what's going on in their communities. Mm -hmm. um, and this, this whole idea of these mandates works on the basis that um, you can always get free and readily accessible um, vaccines um, like combined with medical advice for people. Um, if you don't have that, it starts to get pretty shitty, I think. Like, I, mm. I, I, I kind of, you know, like, I'm not going to lie. I love, like, someone dressed in a uh, uh, hard hat and high-vis that they bought from Bunnings last week, screaming because they can't get into the pub and filming the bouncer um, and asking about the Magna Carta and sovereign citizenship. <laughs> I, think that, I think that person's a loser, and that's really fucking funny to me. Um, I don't like the idea that someone um, from the Burmese community um, uh, suddenly cannot go into a local eatery somewhere um, because they have not been communicated to at all and not explained what's what's going on and what they need to do and where and they can't get that information. I'd, I'd even take that one step further and say I'm I'm not okay with um, someone who's just been dragged in to, to some of this conspiracy stuff who's a little bit anti-authority um, who hasn't had that engagement or that um, that work done by politicians um, being ostracized from society because of like this one bad choice in their medical history. That's a, that's a really fair point. And um, I think what one of the issues is um, this fear that now it's going to be um, something that the silent majority applaud, like harder police fines, um, and like harder, more, more regulations and, and more mandates, um, but they're going to give up on any of the persuasive stuff. Yeah. And I think that's well, a real think mistake. It's all about how you design it. And I think in, in like the case of New Zealand, I know about Australia, but in, in New Zealand, you know, I don't know if the level of uh, kind of anti-vaccine sentiment would justify the kind of steps that, that, that uh, the United States has taken, which I think makes sense in the US context. Um, no other option. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think actually, to be honest, I, I thought the, the stuff that, the, that, that Biden did, uh, I would have gone, if I was him, I would have gone um, airports, you know, because then you're getting, you're not getting the uh, the, the poor people um, or, or working class people who haven't uh, been able to get time off to, to go get vaccinated. You're getting the people who can afford to go on flights, uh, whether inside the country or outside. Uh, who you know are, are going to be maybe uh, more Trump voting people who, uh, for whatever reason, have have decided that the vaccine is going to kill them. Um, but either way, I mean, I think uh, yeah, it should be a last resort, and it has to be paired with with access. So you have to to do things like, you know, not just have vaccines at big events, but but you have to have events in people's neighborhoods where, like, if they're just and, and their languages. Why? Yeah. yeah, one of the biggest worries to me is that the media here, and, and tell me what it's like in Australia as well, Joe, but the media here have played both sides of this um, in a way which is incredibly unhelpful. They're both kind of pushing that freedom of speech stuff um, and saying the government's being too harsh, like no more lockdowns. And at the same time saying we should lock everyone up and we should vaccine mandate and you shouldn't be able to go anywhere at all. So that they're pushing people to not follow government advice at the same time as asking for more authoritarian measures. And then saying that they don't want to fear monger makes a lot of sense. 
Yeah, there, there was an article in um, Red Flag. I don't know if you read it, Joe. It's like an Australian revolutionary mm. Marxist website. And it made the point that the president of the CFMEU, John Setka, you know, at the start of the pandemic last year, he was working with the Masters Builders Association, the sort of Employers Federation, I guess, to, to try and keep the construction sites open. And it was sort of making the point that these people's leadership way back when didn't delineate between like a COVID safe response. It was like, they have to work rather than saying, you know, let's pay them to stay at home. So they've had their leadership for the last 18 months sort of being trying to get them special dispensation to work during a pandemic. So it's kind of like, what do you expect if there's a, a, a strong minority of them who are like, well, I want to be able to keep doing what, you know, what do you totally. think about that? And, and that highlights kind of like a, a sort of broader tension, I think, right now in the Australian labour movement where um, uh, they have sort of struggled to reconcile um, the, the massive underemployed or unemployed um, workforce and demands for a massively enhanced social security net. Because I think of unjustified beliefs in some conservative quarters of the, of the labour movement um, that uh, enhanced social security safety net um, will somehow rob unions of some of their own kind of power to provide good working conditions um, sure. if people have less to fall. <laughs> I've heard some of That's an older yeah. tension going back with yeah. the, the, the union movement. Yeah. Um, there's a real split, it feels, among unionists. And I don't know if it's, like, um, generational or not. Uh, maybe you can speak to this as well, Justine. Um, but where there are people who think of the unemployed as as workers and people who don't. Um, and so if you're, if you're not a union member, you don't get shit. I can't speak for Australia, but um, I think it's, um, it comes from an old political uh, tension between the, um, the full employment people um, who took a more economistic kind of approach to unionism. Um, where, you know, it is about sort of industrial and industrial context, what happens in the workplace. And then, of course, the, um, you know, the unemployed workers movement who kind of don't see the workplace as the be-all, end-all of working-class struggle. Um, and that that's a tension that's definitely... I mean, I think I think the full employment people... I mean, that's that's the New Zealand's context. So I, can't, I really can't speak to the Australian one. Um, but uh, the full employment stuff, I mean, it's a noble goal, I suppose. But um, I, I do think there's a conservative strain there. Like, absolutely um and i also think um it's lame as fuck because i really think we should work less uh, so, so i'm not a fan of i'm not a fan of, you know you know it's just it doesn't really it doesn't make sense in a lot of in a lot of contexts because um yeah so that that kind of that is the cleavage um here and a, sort of the more conservative more labor aligned old school unionists do tend to take that view it makes no sense in any sort of way because obviously like the the benefit the you know like poverty um welfare levels discipline workers and make them accept shitty wages so it just to me i mean yeah makes no sense but that is the the cleavage the other feelings you and justine i would say is um no 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 matter your view whether you like you're you're a you're a service-based or organizing based um union um it, it should be incumbent on you to kind of read the tea leaves and anticipate sort of future trends a little bit and what's going to happen in workplaces and a big failing institutionally with the CFMEU from the time that, you know, vaccinations became a thing and they, they would have known that, you know, we'll come to a point where there will be discussions about vaccinations on return to work. 
this was, you know, months um, that were not used communicating with their work workforces and their members. Was there much of the sort of what Keo Mirborn calls the cosmic right in the anti-vax protesters? Because I know from the UK that was it was surprisingly diverse. Some of the protests they had in London, there was obviously the sort of hardcore misogynist, pale male element, but then there was some, yeah, you sort of like yoga infused sort of new age type, and then also some. But all sorts of people, was that much of that going on? or was um, it... The aesthetic in the last couple of weeks, I think, will have um, alienated a bit of what I'd call the kind of cosmic right, partly because there, there were some sort of ugly things that I think were probably the sort of undoing as a popular movement. Um, you know, mm -hmm. They gathered and occupied the Shrine of Remembrance, which is basically, broadly speaking, an Anzac memorial um, that's massive and neoclassical um, on the south side of, of the Yarra River here. Um, you know, uh, whatever we may individually think about, you know, imperial imperial monuments, um, I, I know what, like, the sort of middle strata of, like, majority public opinion sees about them. And seeing a bunch of yelling dudes um, drinking and pissing on the side of the war memorial um, and then saying get fucked to, like, an old dude turning up and asking them to stop is pretty uh, uh, speaks for itself. And then the following day, they were um, approaching vaccination clinics in the city um, and throwing stuff and spitting at the workers and the people queuing. Wow. Um, so you get two factors there. I think you know majority opinion is is revolted by this behaviour, um, and I think justifiably so. But then I think, you know, your cosmic right of people who want to vibe out and be blissful <laughs> and peaceful, um, never mind the associations, um, don't want to be associated with stuff which they see as crass and macho. Mm. Interesting. Hey, we're just about coming to time. Um, were there any final final things you felt you needed to say about the Australian situation, Joe, before we tie it up? Oh, nothing good. <laughs> it feels like a deeply confused, corrupt and backwards country at the moment, to be honest. <laughs> at the moment? <laughs> I'm constantly moving through time and then I'll be in another moment where it seems like that. Oh, all right, all right, all right. Hey, thanks so much for um, coming along and uh, imparting um, your knowledge about Australian politics. Couldn't do it without you because, I, as I said previously, I, I just can't, I can't bring myself to Fair enough. I can't bring myself to some warnings either. Uh, and, and thanks to my co-host as well, um, Hugh, Justine and Branco for, for joining us this afternoon. Thanks so if you, much. If you've enjoyed this, uh, give it a share, give us a follow, give us a like, um, give us five stars. Um, let people know that there's some independent media out there uh, that you can listen to. Um, we've got a lot of experts coming through every week, um, whether on live stream in our articles uh, or on the podcast. So we'd love to have you along for the journey. Um, and you can jump on our Patreon if you want to give us some funds to continue doing that. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your